I've had lots of conversations with people that over the past three or four years that, you know, they're, they're talking about big kind of um, ideas, big things that need to happen. But actually, I think like any change, it happens in very small pockets. And those pockets, those nano communities build and they build and they build and they're strong together. And like you say, they're resilient. And that's what really makes the change. So it starts from a very small seed and it's, it's a slow burn, you know, and, and that for me is, is the only way we can really change because we're changing through our individual um, ways in which we, in this case, consume fashion. You can't just dictate to somebody or a group of people, this is what you've got to do. We're gonna take this away from you. And you've got no choice. You've got to do that. No, nobody would would respond to that really. Um, it's about making people see the benefits. Welcome to One Planet Fashion the podcast exploring the ways in which the fashion and textiles industry is changing to allow our people and planet to thrive. In this episode, I'm joined by Sam Hudson-Miles. Sam is a course leader for the BA Honours Fashion Design Suite at the University of Huddersfield. And originally from West Yorkshire, Sam studied MA Fashion Design at Central St Martins in the mid-90s, followed by a career in garment manufacturing, which led into a career in higher education and teaching. Sam is a really passionate fashion educator and an excellent shopper of secondhand clothing. Her PhD research explores her coined phrase, soul shopping, within the secondhand clothing sector in Dewsbury, West Yorkshire. The act of soul shopping challenges overconsumption and inspires everyone to be part of a more mindful approach to acquiring clothing. I could have talked to Sam all day about setting up her own garment manufacturing business, about her master's course, about setting up her own label, about how she develops and delivers fashion education and all the changes that she's seen in the charity retail sector since her first experiences of shopping in charity shops in Leeds in the early 80s. Sam brings all of these experiences together to educate and inspire the next generation of designers, researchers, retailers, manufacturers and more as they enter into the fashion and textiles industry at a time of radical change. You can follow Sam on Instagram at sam.hudsonmiles and please do join in the conversation over on Instagram at oneplanetfashion. I look forward to hearing from you and enjoy the podcast. Sam, welcome. It's so lovely. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I've been really inspired. We've had a chat um, a, a few weeks ago, really, and about your work. And I was really inspired to talk to you because I think you've got some great ideas and really excited to see what you're doing locally, but also within the university. Um, so if you'd like to just start by giving us a bit of information about your background and how you got into working in fashion and, um, and what you're up to at the moment. Okay, it's quite a long story that, because, <laughs> um, well, I went straight to fashion school. I don't know how far you want me to go back, but I went straight to fashion school after leaving school at 16, uh, back in the 80s, um, because I just knew from the age of 11 um, that was what I wanted to get involved with. Um, so I moved to London. I'm from Yorkshire, from uh, West Yorkshire. So I moved to London in uh, 88. 
and uh, went to study in London and did my master's degree at Central St Martins under um, the inimitable Louise Wilson. So that was a fabulous experience, absolutely fabulous. Um, I then um, started my own brand, but at th that time I also had two very small children. So I was kind of balancing life and work. So I, I relocated actually back to Yorkshire um, and launched my own uh, brand of, of uh, menswear and then I went into women's wear but at the same time I was producing clothes for young designers because I found there was a real gap in the market this was by this time we're in sort of the mid to late 90s um, so in, in the UK a lot of manufacturing had gone offshore so designers were coming to me to have small production runs made which which was great but it meant I had to employ quite a big team of, of machinists so it ended up being more of a sort of what we call a cut make and trim facility a cmt facility yeah. than really my own creative brand um so i sort of downsized from that really and, and then i started my own women's wear label so i could kind of balance the two together and obviously raising my, my two children at the time um I then got a call out of the blue and was asked to come in and do some teaching hours at Batley School of Art, which is where I started as a student way back. Um, so I jumped at the chance and that was in about 2000, 2001. And I've stayed in education ever since. Um, so I, I kind of was in a position as well, personally, I suppose, where I was thinking I, I could do with a, a steady salary. I wanted to buy a house. I wanted a future in that sense for my kids. So there's very practical decision making at that time. Um, so I, I kind of ran the business down, but I, I got so much, um, um, oh, my brain's gone. I got so much experience, sorry, got so much experience um, working within a production facility as a designer, working with other young emerging designers, des uh, designer brands, and even big brands, actually, that want to do very small runs. So I was working with Next and House of Fraser, as well as brands that, that you know, that, that were very young, sort of graduates coming out of art school, fashion school. I got So I got so much experience that over the years <clears throat> with my teaching, as well as obviously practice-based stuff, I feel that I can really offer a lot to fashion students about what it's like to set up your own label, what you need to be careful of, um, you know, what, what the process is, what the logistics are. Um, and it's been absolutely invaluable for me, that, that experience. It was almost like another sort of um, apprenticeship for me, really. <laughs> so that, that was that. And then I stayed actually at Batley for about 14 years. And I, and I sort of went from being a part-time lecturer into a course leader and then into management. Um, and then it got to the stage, um, this was about 2013, where I wanted really to come out of management and work much more in teaching fashion. So I then moved to what was Leeds College of Art, which is now Leeds Arts University. And I was course leader there for the fashion design degree for six years. Um, got loads of experience, loved working there. Um, and then got to a stage again, this was in 2019, where I thought, what's the next thing for me? which was a PhD. Um, so I feel that now I'm at a, a good place in life to do my PhD. Um, and so I moved to Huddersfield. There was a job that came up again as a course leader for fashion and I got the job, which was brilliant. And so that's where I am now. So I'm at Huddersfield. I've been there, like I say, since um, September, 2019. Um, yes, yeah, started on my PhD this September. So I'm really, I'm a rookie. It's really early days. <laughs> 
So aside from my teaching, um, which I can sort of expand on a bit, my research is, is really comes under the umbrella of sustainable fashion. Um, but obviously that's a huge area. Um, and it was sprung out of out of teaching, out of pedagogy, you know, what, what I'm trying to sort of, I suppose, intrinsically teach my students about how to be conscious design practitioners um, as then fed through into sort of a research de uh, degree, really. And is that something that you brought into your teaching practice because you had been in industry and had that experience as well as a kind of personal perspective, but you've had that professional perspective on the industry and how in those early days, how did that kind of move with you into teaching practice? I think that um, it was sort of quite innate, you know, and I think what's interesting is it wasn't really I know sustainability has been a big a big uh, drive in the fashion industry for probably two decades now, you know, in, the, in this phase that we're in now. Um, but I, I, I probably didn't think about it sort of consciously until maybe about uh, five or six years ago, actually. I think I was in a slightly different place in my career prior to that, where I was really trying to build up a, um, a sort of nationally rec and internationally recognized fashion course. And that was where my primary aim was and that I managed to do that. But then I think that I can remember the, the exact time when the penny dropped. And I remember being at, um, at, at a major fashion graduate event and watching the runway shows one after the other after the other over a period of five, six days for the first time. And so from being quite excited in previous years and seeing all this amazing talent, which it is still amazing talent coming through, suddenly I switched and I sat there and I thought, why are we doing this? Why are we producing, even at this level, never mind the, the industry itself, so many clothes? What happens to these clothes after? Where do they go? Is there a purpose behind them? You know, is it just something that, that someone's done to, to, to get a grade, to get the degree, and, and then what? There must be another way. <laughs> Without, obviously, um, being detrimental to the creativity that is fashion design. And then sort of, unless my conscious perspective shifted I suddenly started to notice that you know um, these organizations were focusing their, themselves as well on on considered fashion sustainable fashion um, diversity and equality ethnic diversity and it all suddenly started to to kind of um, you know come through which was brilliant and I think that's when I thought right I need to do something and that was really where the where the um, journey started for me thinking about I want to go further in my career than just teaching I need to do a PhD and so that was the catalyst um, and then I started sort of getting really into what Kate Fletcher was was um, doing at the time with craft of use and I think that particular um, that particular book was the thing the thing that inspired my PhD and so the crux of it is, and I suppose it sounds a bit odd coming from a designer, is that I didn't want my PhD to be about making more clothes. And there's two reasons for that. One is the obvious one, that, that you know, there are perhaps too many clothes in the world. How do we solve that problem? And the second one, I suppose, came from a place where there are so many PhD researchers in the world that are doing amazing things with sustainable fashion. And I just thought, can I really offer can I really, you know, reach that benchmark? I'm not sure. Is is it a bit beyond me? Um, and then, and then that came back to, to I guess, me as a, as a person within my own creative right. And this is where the, the PhD research came in, into play, where it was about actually the consumer 
rather than a lot of work around sustainability is being done looking at the supply chain from design to production and then to the consumer. So it's supply, but where's that supply coming from? It's coming from demand. And where's that demand coming from? It's coming from the consumer. I mean, there's a bigger picture to this. The consumer wants it because the advertisers make them want it. And I'm looking a lot about this into the psychology of consumption, which is really interesting. So uh, my PhD really is not about making, it is about slowing um, the cycle of, of what we now call fast fashion down, but from the point of consumption because if, if, the, if the fashion consumer thinks differently about how they buy, what they buy, and how they use it, and to coin Kate Fletcher's term, usership of garments, then that will naturally just slow everything down. And it won't we'll just do that. It will also connect the fashion consumer, the fashion wearer, with the pieces that they own. You know, and that's the other thing that the mindless fashion consumption now um, needs, you know, needs to stop. And this is another way of, of, of sort of, perhaps changing pe people, not just fashion consumers, but people's um, approach to buying fashion, thinking about what fashion is, the fashion experience, what is that to them? Is this such a thing? Oh, I just buy something and I wear it. Well, well no, we, we need to stop that. So that's really what it's about. And something that I find really um, interesting about your work and research as well, Sam, is, um, is obviously placing the individual, you know, in as, as a really important part of the system. And I think that sometimes we feel outside of the system, you know, as a as a consumer, as a citizen, like the, the fashion industry is something that happens somewhere else. And I think bringing people and bringing individuals into that and making them realize that they're a fundamental part, um, like you say, they've got the, as, as that power, as a consumer power, you know, we've got so much privilege and all this clothing is being turned out because we continue to buy it. Um, encouraging people to see their worth in the system and step up to the to the power that they have but also to use that power in a really responsible way and actually to affect a better industry um we've talked about kate fletcher before and her earth logic and putting earth's needs at the heart of everything and that's what one planet fashion these conversations are all about but also in doing that we make a better industry for us to experience one that's more sociable one that's more connected one that's based on community that's resilient that's based on skills and value and love of a garment um and i think that that's something that's um really interesting in your phd research as well if you'd like to tell us a little bit more about how um what yeah your i mean that goes very much in tandem with with the sort of I suppose the practice itself of, of consumption it's very much about that so again as part of um, I suppose my identity and, and now in terms of my practice identity is really about connecting uh, it's about humanity um, the, the title of the PhD is, is about a term that I've, I've, I've used called soul shopping so um, and it's also based very much around locality so, so meaning that, it, that it's positioned within a particular area in a particular town so th there's actually a really autoethnographic approach about this that it, it's it's sort of a little bit autobiographical in, in its in its sort of um, in its sort of nucleus in, in that it started from a place of, of where I grew up um, and like many towns, certainly in the north, but but certainly now in the UK, that that have had that have been thriving towns that have kind of 
reached a, a demise for one reason or another. Obviously, economy is, is one of the main reasons. Um, so I really wanted to look at a specific area um, and almost do a, a, a sort of a geographical trace of that area, not just of, of, the, of the physical topography, such as the textile industry, the fashion retail industry, charity shops, um, which are a big feature of this, but the people as well, um, and the communities, and how we can, um, and, and, and another term that I use a lot is, is and I don't know if it's actually a real term, but I use it anyway, <laughs> is nano-community. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's an awful lot now around revolution, about change, whether it's political, whether it's obviously about climate action. And I've had lots of conversations with people that over the past three or four years that, you know, they're, they're talking about big kind of um, ideas, big things that need to happen. But actually, I think like any change, it happens in very small pockets. And those pockets, those nano communities build and they build and they build and they're strong together. And like you say, they're resilient. And that's what really makes the change. So it starts from a very small seed and it's, it's a slow burn, you know, and, and that for me is, is the only way we can really change because we're changing through our individual um, ways in which we, in this case, consume fashion. You can't just dictate to somebody or a group of people, this is what you've got to do. We're gonna take this away from you and you've got no choice, you've got to do that. No, Nobody would, would respond to that really. Um, it's about making people see the benefits, um, not just of fashion, but of people of something we all have in common and that we all wear clothes um, we all live in communities you know um, we're probably all feeling certainly now very very isolated um, and and I think sharing stories even about about our pieces that we own are a way of connecting with them but but bringing bringing other stories together and other people together and that's one of the first things I want to start doing with this project is is through through platforms such as um, Woven and the Woven Festival is, is getting people together, um, you know, participants just to talk about pieces that they own. It could be anything. Um, in fact, it doesn't even have to be clothing. It could be an ornament. It could, could be anything that, that they've got a story around. Um, and I think as well, in terms of that sort of, just going back to fashion consumption, I, th I think there's an awful lot in the media, like you're saying, people feel separate from the industry. And, and yes, that's true. Obviously you and I, and a lot of people like us are immersed in it, but many, many people aren't, you know, they know nothing really about what goes on other than what they read in the media. Um, and so I think, again, some of those messages as well about spend more and buy less, I, I think to some degree are misplaced because it's, it's still um, encouraging consumers to, to, to spend a lot of money on something that in not in every case will mean that it's good quality, actually. Um, you know, it, it doesn't. Um, and is that the answer? And, and is that the answer, especially now when everyone's sort of watching the pennies? Do they feel that, well, gosh, if I want something nice, I've, I've got to go and spend £500 instead of the £30 that I would have paid? And I'm not sure that that's, the, that's something that sits comfortably with me. Mm. Um, so the angle that I'm taking is is around charity shopping. And is that um, in terms of a sole a sole shopper? How would a sole shopper look for clothes? If there's any listeners here who think that they could um, get into sole shopping, what would your advice be into how they pursue that? Okay, so 
I've been charity shopping since the age of 13. So 1983, I used to get on the bus from Murfield. <laughs> I used to get on the bus to Leeds. It used to take about an hour and a half. And at the time, Leeds, and this is just giving you a bit of background, at the time, Leeds was not what Leeds is today. Leeds was still quite grimy. It was just coming out of the big textile and clothing production industry where everything was being shipped, first of all, to, to the what we call the near near shore in such as the Eastern Europe, places like Romania, um, and, and ultimately then far shore into China, et cetera. So it was in a real state of flux and it was still quite grimy. It wasn't the shiny city that, that it is today at all. Um, and so there were a lot of charity shops. Um, and so I used to get, didn't have much money, obviously, I used to take my spend, go and shop. So the thing with soul shopping is it can be very frustrating if you see something on a runway or in a magazine, like I want that, Okay, that you go with an agenda. I'm looking for that. It can be really disheartening because you might not find it. Conversely, if you're new to charity shopping and the whole experience, sometimes having an idea in mind of what you want is good because it helps you to focus. You know, you, you, you know, there's rails and rails of unwanted clothing and it just helps you to focus. And especially if you're visiting eight, 10, 12 charity shops in, in one day, you know, it can be a bit overwhelming. So it just helps you to focus. But I would say... Um, have an open mind. Um, think about even with charity shopping, even if something only costs three pounds, still don't have that attitude when well, it's only three quid. It doesn't matter. Yes, the money is going to charity, but you are still increasing the items in your wardrobe. So still be very question yourself when you're looking at something. You know, what, what excites me the most is. Um, yes, of course, if I've got something in mind that I really want um, and I find it and it's there, or something similar, you know, great. But if I don't and I'm just browsing and I'm keeping an open mind, I will really think about and think, is that going to change my wardrobe? Is that going to bring other things out of my wardrobe that I can wear in a new way? Um, or is it something that actually I've already got that I forgot I had or that I can rewear or rework, you know, and, and still be mindful? Um I, I also obviously look for quality as well still, you know, I think the days are gone where you can find a lot of vintage in charity shops because that whole system again has changed over the past 15 years, probably even 20 years where it was being siphoned out of charity shops and onto again, sales platforms. Even charity shops have their own sort of side hustle with, with the and they're selling things for 90 quid and you used to be able to get them for five and that's changed. But you you still, if you've got a good eye um, and that develops over time, you know, you can still find things that may not necessarily be vintage, but can give that feel for what it is you're, you're looking to, to, to sort of achieve with your look. Um, in terms of, of style as well, I think the more eclectic you are with your style and the more open you are, um, the easier you're going to find it. I think if you've got a very one-dimensional style that I only really wear this and that, you know, T-shirt and jeans, fine. But, okay, how can you mix that up? You know, okay, let's look for jeans then. If you're just a jeans wearer, then your project could be, right, I'm going to go and find the best fitting pair of jeans. I'm going to look at men's jeans. I'm going to look at women's jeans. I'm going to try them on. Obviously, we can't at the moment, but, you know, you can still take them home and take them back. Charity shops have changed their returns policies, by the way, at the moment with COVID. So um, 
So you could just fixate on, on if you have a very narrow kind of linear way of dressing, that's fine, but find the best thing you possibly can, the best T-shirt, the best polar neck, the best pair of jeans, you know, that kind of look, make it the best you can. Um, if you're a bit of a magpie like me, then yeah, the world's your oyster really. And and even looking in, in the uh, nightwear rails, on the lingerie rails, yes, it's been used, but try not to worry about that. Just wash it, you know, it's fine. Um, and I think these days, a lot of charity shops, they're very clean. Everything's cleaned and steamed before it's put out. Um, they're often merchandise, so you can find things easily. So I think that stigma of, of kind of, well, who's had it before is, is not quite what it was. Um, so that, think that's, that's, that's the, do you think that's the main stigma around people engaging with choosing secondhand first is the fact that garments are so physical, you know, and then come into close contact with the body? Is that... In, if people are a bit, um, how would you encourage somebody around it if they were thinking that that? Might so be that's wrong? interesting because um, my eldest son <clears throat> is almost twenty nine and he would not dream of entering a charity shop. And when I used to go in with him when he was a kid, it'd just be like it'd, it'd literally be pulling me out, and you know, mum, I've got to be ache. Whereas now, if he's in the right frame of mind, I, you know, I started off first of all by buying things for him and saying, "Do you like this? You can have this if you want." He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah." He's, you know, it looks like Carhartt. It's, it's like actually it was seven ninety nine from you know British Art Foundation. Great, and he would wear it, and there isn't a problem. So I think it's and and my youngest son, who's fifteen, he will quite readily accept things from charity shop even though as long as they're good what he calls valid as long as they're valid <laughs> valid I like that valid. valid yeah it doesn't mean what we think it means apparently valid means is is it is it cool you know is it is it, is it, is it got street cred um he he will yeah he, he he will not worry about anything as as long as it's it's cool um my daughter who's who's 26 she's like me in fact she's incredibly bohemian and she's yeah she's she's absolutely a thrift queen she's great in her style and not bothered but but yes i think that i think to the mass demographic i think there probably is an issue less so now but there still is an issue around i'm not going to a child's shop but i do think the main issue could be that because fashion is so at our fingertips, we can get, oh, I want this, I can get it, I've got it, I've paid for it, it's on its way. The thing with charity shopping, I think I think part of the whole sort of, um, if you, you unpick the word, word soul, is that you're shopping with your soul, you know, you're shopping in a different way. It takes time, it takes patience, it takes a bit of creativity, it takes a bit of understanding about what it is you want. You have to engage in the process. It's not about clicking a button and it's arrived on your doorstep in three days. And I think that might be what puts people off. I mean, obviously, charity shops are closed at the moment, so you can't get anything now if you're wanting clothing. But I think this is an ideal opportunity for us to, to revisit our wardrobes anyway and think, OK, what have I already got um, that I can use and, and use in a different way? So I, I think the stigma might be more about I can't be bothered can't be bothered that it would be the message to go around charity shops on I've got better things to do I'll just get it from wherever um that's I think the main issue that we're facing now because a lot of people do shop in charity shops and funnily enough I don't, I don't know if you've noticed but during lockdown when when the charity shops did reopen for a while there were queues to get into them so yes. You know, worked, yeah. It did bring joy to my heart. We saw the queues outside Primark in the media, but the queues outside the charity shop were also there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, 
So are the only problems with the charity shops, they're only letting one or two people in at once. So you had to wait. We were waiting about 45 minutes to get into one one day, <laughs> me and my husband. <laughs> um, but, you, you know. And as the charity retail sector and also other platforms such as Depop and obviously eBay, do you feel that you can still be a sole shopper and shop online for secondhand? Yes, yes, as long as it's secondhand. And I think that the comment that you made about buying secondhand first is so important here. It's like, how do we change that culture of, well, I go, I go to eBay first, even. If I don't, okay, charity shops are a physical entity in, in the main, aren't they? Um, but yeah, eBay, Depop. I mean, I shop on eBay. I only shop on eBay and Depop. Um, I don't, maybe 2% of what I buy might be new. Um, you know, and that's just basic stuff that, you know, that I might need that I can't get. Um, but yeah, eBay. But then but then you see there's this whole marketization as well that you've got to be really careful of. So the problem with buying on eBay and, and I think more so Depop is, yes, it's sold in the main by individuals. Of course, there are, there are shops within those frameworks, but let's say it's an individual just selling things. They're, they're still selling for a lot more and if you, that is, it, the thing is with charity shopping, it's the joy of the find, you know. Yeah. With eBay, it's the joy of the find, but you might pay 30 quid on eBay when if you found it in, in the charity shop, you might pay seven pounds. And so, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really thrifty, always have been. So it really, I think money for me, the cost of something probably comes first with anything I do. So that's just a personal thing. But yes, there is that marketized element of, you know, um, if you've got hours to spend trawling eBay, you might still find gems quite cheap where people are just selling selling things because, but there's still the element of people kind of, um, you know, behaving like a business and, and sort of profiteering, if you like, which is nothing wrong with that. But as a sole shopper, it, it's sort of, uh, there's a lot of conscience about it and, you know, yeah. you just got to weigh up what's best for you. But yeah, I think as long as things are secondhand, I think the only other thing, with Depop and eBay and, and sites like that is is you still have to be very careful and sometimes you might receive something and the quality is not great. Um, you know, the description hasn't been accurate and it's a little bit of hassle then, isn't it? Trying to send it back or get a refund mm -hmm. or a partial refund. Whereas in charity shops, you know, you've got that physical environment that you can really look at something. And I guess that experience with textiles is so tactile and our brains are taking so much information from the way that we're feeling garments when we hold them up we can see the size we can, if it's a dress we can immediately see exactly where it'll fit us on our bodies if there's a anything that needs mending or is you know our eyes are drawn to any damage which we could repair or for some people that you know get somebody else to repair um we're making so many assessments through the through the feel of it aren't we when it's a textile product and we're in a physical space um how obviously we are not able to do them at the moment for things like clothes swapping and where do you see those kinds of interactions with clothing how do they fit into soul shopping yeah i think that the whole swapping um phenomenon that started at what 15 20 years ago was brilliant um yeah, I mean, I, I'd not actually thought of that because I was thinking more about slowing down consumption per se, whereas swapping is circular, isn't it? It's still keeping things, which I think forms part of an element. I, I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
that there's all sorts of sort of swapping parties going on and and you know um I, we used to have them at, at uni actually we used to set them up in fact the student union used to set them up and they were really good you'd pay I don't know three or four pounds to get in and, and so you know and then you'd, you'd sort of bring something and swap it yeah I think it's great I think it's just getting the only thing with that is 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 a getting people to engage and b making sure people bring things that are quality um you know so that everyone has a fair a fair chance to sort of swap like for like in in a way um so I haven't had so much experience I haven't actually set one up myself but I think that would be my main um agenda is if you know if you're going to get involved let's keep it sort of really you know exciting and bring interesting stuff that excites us that we really want to, to swap our other our existing stuff for and then you really get the momentum going don't you absolutely absolutely um so sam if you had a wish for um the charity retail sector to engage as many people as possible with this with soul shopping how do you think um things could be improved to to encourage more people to shop in this way i think it starts with the shop window doesn't it um and i think that's i think what another thing that's happened over 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 a number of years that i've noticed particularly in the more middle class towns and villages is that um, the volunteers will, will put a window display together and it's all very nice. And they'll even, what worries me a little bit is that a lot of the, the, the sifting, the merchandising goes on obviously in the back of the shop and they put things out. And yes, the, the items that are put out are in really good condition, you know, really lovely, but they're, they're all in the mind's eye of, of those people that are doing that. And I think to some degree, it's lost that energy that it had back in the olden days when everything went out on the shop floor and you could get something for 50 pence and, you know, and it didn't matter because I think that what, what I think has gone going wrong is, is that the charity shop is starting to see itself as a boutique and they're seeing that as a way to get the shoppers in they make it smell nice they put nice sort of mirrors up and great great but then you're only getting a certain demographic that'll go in they're also putting their prices up as well to mirror obviously it's for charity so but but then I think that's alienating the market and certainly when I go in and see things that something that's safe from you know a lower end high street shop but they they want eight pounds for a t-shirt it's 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 I think it's it's um yeah, it doesn't sit well with me at all. Um, I know there's a bigger picture here. So I think the first thing is, is to get the energy back in. You know, get get people in that have that are stylists, you know, whether they're amateur or professional, um, you know, um, get, yes, have, have a great window with some quality pieces, but let's get it looking like a really edgy kind of forward thinking place, which you could pick anything from any charity shop. And if you've got a good stylist eye, you, you can put it together. So that's A, that's drawing a different demographic in, but it's also teaching you how you can use charity shops to dress. So when you go back to one of your first questions about what advice would you give to someone who's new to charity shopping and how what do they look for? If that window's done in kind of really quirky ways, things you wouldn't expect to put together that you can easily find in, in the shop, but it looks great, that's going to draw them in, surely. Keep the prices down so people can access them you know some the more independent charity shops are still doing that but 
some of the what have become chains now are, are putting the prices up and you'll go from one of the same shop in one town to another in a slightly more affluent area and the prices are, are, are a different tier um, you know again I think that has to be um, analysed really and perhaps looked at and don't know how easy that would be to do but yeah mm. yeah there's there's um, definitely a shop window I love that idea yeah and um, an upcycling project and an upcycling project absolutely well I've um, I have pitched a few and um, I think to upcycle them it's hard isn't it with upcycling by the time you've sourced the garments deconstructed them cleaned them you're already at slightly higher price point than as if you were just to buy fabric off them for the meter. Mm. Um, so as an upcycler selling upcycled garments, you're immediately at a higher price point, which right. I don't think a lot of the people who would go into charity shops, especially in the areas that I've suggested these projects would be willing to pay. But how but, about if we look at upcycling in different way, upcycling as styling, not as remaking? Well, yeah, so absolutely. Upcycling a piece through the way you wear it, you're not doing any anything, you know, maybe something like that, and that that's it comes about more as a styling exercise, but it it comes under upcycling, doesn't it? Because you're upcycling. Absolutely. I think you're seeing, yeah, without having to deconstruct and then reconstruct it, if you're able to just through, a, you know, a process of selection, um, and styling in something that you would never. Have none, and get those ideas like you say if that those windows could not just show the, the garments that are available to buy but also suggest alternative ways in which putting clothing together i think that's a really really fascinating way of looking at upcycling as well is, is upcycling ideas and upcycling style i also think social media could play a part so when we think about charity shops and it's mainly volunteers and obviously everything's on a budget but social media is free isn't it so you can get I mean it could be a student project for example you know you could get volunteers to go in that want to build their own portfolio up so you could have like photographic images in the shop of how things have been put together again a visual draw you could have an Instagram page for for the shop that again, you know, generates content and, you know, that's also bringing together um, awareness, you know, showing, uh, you know, bringing about awareness of that that particular charity shop and drawing people in. So I think social media could play a huge part. I, I think it needs, like I said, it needs energy. It needs something beyond the volunteers that, that kind of keep the, the cogs going. That That's hugely important, but it needs an injection of some some uh, some soul <laughs> in the way that it's um yeah in the way that and, and actually easy these are easy wins yeah you know could be a photographer photography student who just wants more fashion in the portfolio that's looking at you know sustainable fashion or has that kind of you know idea it could be a fashion styling student or even a fashion design student fashion comm student who you know they could collaborate collaboration is great as well that's building creative communities it's also creating a buzz around that area that may not be seen as a creative town you know um so there's lo loads of wins there that are, are free and all it all it means is somebody's time and the more people are involved in this the more they can share share the workload um so yeah that that's um that's one way absolutely um, i will sam i let is it brilliant call to action things that can can be happening now be people getting out there making those connections inspiring and other encouraging others to get on board 
with cell shopping? I think, I think just as a finisher, I think another call to action is during lockdown where we can't go soul shopping, we can't go to charity shops. I think immediately today, what the listeners could do if they're not already is going through their wardrobe. They could be clicking on the Vogue runway app, which is a great thing to have. They could be looking at collections on the runway. They could be getting a bit of an idea of, of fashion that's coming through in the next sort of um, couple of months. They can start to think, okay, that's what's on the runway. I love that look. I love that collection. That's that. Even me as a designer and someone involved in fashion twenty four seven, I still do that because you can become really uh, um, fashion blind. <laughs> it's like we don't know what we've got. So I often get inspired by runway collections. Oh gosh, that one piece in my wardrobe. That's my piece for spring summer. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to rework that. I'm going to wear it like this. And, and it, you need that in like any creative endeavor. You need inspiration, don't you? So absolutely. Absolutely. Check Upcycle. <laughs> Upcycle your style today. Upcycle style today. Get on the or similar Vogue Runway app. It's all there. Just have a look. Get some music on. Um, get inspired and sort your wardrobe out. And I think as well, another another good thing is rotating your clothing. So like have sort of every six months, try and rotate your wardrobe. So if you've got things that you've got under your bed or you're in storage or whatever, you just want to reorganize it, you will find things that you, even though they're in your wardrobe hanging up, you'll have forgotten you had or you didn't see the value of how you could wear them. So these are all things we can be doing right now. Fantastic. Sam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's, it's, been, been, it's been excellent. And it's actually inspired some thinking actually now for me around my research. It's been brilliant, Julia. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to One Planet Fashion. Please click to subscribe and join the conversation over on Instagram and Twitter at One Planet Fashion. 